How do we actually prepare our participants for struggle? Because high elements tend to be a struggle, and I'm not entirely sure we accurately prepare them for being at height. So this episode is all based on a blog post titled, The Struggle is Real. Will you start to believe that it's real? Miller, who is our development uh, director, director of development, he was tasked with writing a blog post on some old materials that we had in the archives. And one of them was on the activity Helium Hoop. And so he came into the training team room and myself and Rich were there. And he asked the question, what is Helium Hoop? So I explained that activity to him. For those people who don't know what it is, um, you either take a Helium Hoop. I'm sorry, you don't take a Helium Hoop. You either take a hula hoop or a stick, it's often sometimes called helium stick, and the task is whilst everyone maintains uh, contact with an index finger underneath the hoop or a stick, they start off um, often around uh, waist height, chest height, and they have to lower it all the way to the ground without the stick becoming off its horizontal plane and also without fingers coming off of the hoop or the stick. The reason it's called helium hoop and helium stick is because everyone's intention is to keep their fingers on it, so they push upwards against it, which makes it rise. Quick funny story about this is that one time we did get a phone call to the High Five office. Someone had purchased um, the hula hoop pieces off our website and were asking very seriously how we actually got the helium into the hula hoop. They had bought themselves some helium. They had bought themselves the hoop and they were asking, how did I get it in there? So he came and asked about that. And then he asked the question that is leading us into this conversation, which is why would anyone want to play that? Because it seems extremely frustrating. Um, So we explained that that's sometimes the point of activities that we do is to create spaces where people can experience frustration or struggle and how that group can cope in those scenarios. And it gives us stuff to talk about. So that's what this blog post is in reference to. And it goes into more detail on that. What I thought we would do as a team is just talk about that concept of struggle and concept of frustration. And then we'll also identify some activities or give some anecdotes of where that came into play for us and how we have dealt with adding struggle or frustration into programming. So I'm going to hand off to uh, Lisa right now. So Lisa? What are the barriers that we as practitioners have with allowing a group to struggle? Where do we need to let it happen? What are the considerations for reining it in? Um, What's our discomfort? Where does that discomfort come from? And then from a design piece, which is the part that I'm still so fascinated with is what's the value of struggle? And then how does it impact what you're doing next with the group, especially when it comes to your activity sequence? So, you know, what happens, for example, when you get to climbing and the group has had sort of engineered success all the way up there? And what does the term challenge course really mean? So Like, why do we want people to struggle? I think we should always be asking ourselves that question. For me, a specific activity, I think we could all probably list activities that can promote and what do they have in common? I think 
I had a workshop a couple weeks ago where the participants taught me so much in the conversation they wanted to have around activity types. And we were doing the classic turnstile initiative, one, two, three equals 20 or one, two, three equals 10. Whatever the activity, the dynamic is that the facilitator has a solution and the participants are trying to find the solution. I mean, some folks will do, will breeze through that. A lot of folks won't, but I think that there's a specific dynamic with struggle when you're giving the group an answer and they're trying to navigate their way toward it. And what this group brought the conversation to was, wow, when you had the, when you told us the outcome that you wanted, we were hesitant to engage in trying because it was sort of like, even though I kept saying the only way to find the solution is to engage with the jump rope, they were like, well, it could be this, it could be this. It was so hard for them to start. And then they led the conversation to the question of like, well, what about an activity where there isn't a specific outcome in mind, but it's still adventure. We did a completely different activity type where it was just, I kept giving them little tasks, ultimately leading to an eyes closed activity. And it was so interesting for me to think about that dynamic of, are they trying to find a solution or are they trying to have a process? I think helium hoop, I think it's also that dynamic of, oh, like you're tricking us or this is harder than it looks. During the AB, the last Adventure Basics that I led, I did, and I've been doing this if a site has the low element team triangle, they everyone's going to start inside on that platform and they have to figure out what parameters are going to allow them to be able to get out. Like there are rules that I have. It's that same concept. Like I've got stuff, they have to figure out the rules. And the only way, the only information they're going to get is they know they get something wrong and have to reset when they hear me blow a kazoo, which in itself is an annoying noise. But they, uh, annoying noises their, their hesitancy is the same thing. If like They didn't want to start. Like, and I wonder if it's because they didn't want to make a mistake. They didn't ever want to hear it. They thought they were aiming, they were going to get to perfection. But the only way they were going to get to it right is if they figured out what was wrong. So you needed to have them experience failure in order for them to have success. And I wonder if that, that struggle piece is that people really struggle to be vulnerable or make mistakes for whatever reasons that might be. And, and it, they turn it into, oh, I'm not sure I like that activity. And I got feedback like from the Team Triangle. They're like, wow, because it was the second day of the workshop and we'd had all positivity up until then. It was interesting because I'd had activities that all were success-oriented or at least joyful they were connection-based. There wasn't really, and even some of the initiatives I gave were like, you do as best as you can. It was a timed thing where they're beating their own time. They're not being a record or, you know, they're, so they're happy wherever their goal is. That was the first time where there was a finite, you get it right or you get it wrong. And they struggled at it, really struggled. And we were there for 45 minutes, it started to get dark and they were getting irritated. But I, at the, when we came down for dinner, we had a good discussion about why I would choose to do an activity like that. And then they slowly got on board with like, I get why he made us do that now. And that group was probably in a much different place to then climb and readiness to experience personal struggle. What happens when you haven't had that genuine struggle on the ground and then you're asking people to take that to height? It's so different. I also really question as facilitator when it's okay or good to actually have a group really intentionally for my focus, have them struggle. And I think it gets down to, as I listen more in my, my, my journey, it's more about the amount of time I have with a particular group. If it's in a 40 minute short, whether that be like a class or an hour and a half, those time strengths 
constraints. If I have 40 minutes, I'm, I'm not purposely going to have them, I think, struggle when I plan programs because I don't have the time to follow through on that. Like, Phil, you were having the ability to have a great discussion with that and be able to kind of pay off and ha- begin to work through why failure is difficult or challenging. So for me, it's only if I have, feel I have enough time with people and groups to be able to begin to discuss that. Maybe I don't have to do a deep dive into it, but I, I have the, the ability to have time to be able to have those, those kinds of discussions. I know when I first started doing this stuff and I was creating activities that I knew that people were liking that would feel good rather than creating actual challenge. In reference to the helium hoop, I hated that activity when I first started. It's also an activity I don't think accurately taught, but it gets taught to new practitioners very early on in their repertoire. So it's like one of 10 things they know. And I don't think that's the best activity to learn. Oh, and you should do it for 10 minutes or so <laughs> and travel to the next element. So even the group is yeah. mini imploded or may implode and like, okay, we're going to move on. Because as a facilitator, you're not experienced enough to be able to delve into the why you create the struggle. I use it now more often, but we recently all flew out to work with the Calgary Flames. I was tasked with running an activity on the last day as a you know, a sort of finale initiative. And I chose to use um, Ubuntu Mimeograph. So the way that activity works is that I lay down a pattern of the Ubuntu cards on a table or a floor and then give each group, how many groups, and this one, there were three groups, but give each group a the same resource, which is a deck of Ubuntu. And their task is to recreate as best they can the image that I have in front of me. And they can do that by sending only one person at a time from their group to come and observe the image for, when I did it, I did it for 30 seconds. So they study the image for 30 seconds. They have to run back to their group or go back to their group, share the information, and then the next one comes. In this particular image, I left, I put something in it that I knew was going to be a struggle in that I left in the corner of the image the deck of Ubuntu with all of the rest of the cards that were not used in the pattern stacked in it. That You could tell that they were all in there if you really focused, but it's often missed. And I would say I've done that image hundreds of times and never had people get 100% right. So I knew it was supposed to be a challenge, but it makes me nervous because I don't, I don't want people to be mad. It's like the empathetic thing is also a selfish thing for me to not want people to be angry at me for something. But I put it out there because the group had had positivity the whole way through and we wanted to try to engage them in some sort of struggle. Have it be that it wasn't, they weren't going to be successful. In sport, you lose. And we wanted them to experience loss. It came to the opportunity for me to reveal to each of the groups how they're done. And each group I knew had not put all the rest of the cards inside the box. So they'd all missed it. So I had a choice. I could either ignore that and say they all did it perfectly, or I would tell every single one of those players that they had not succeeded. And so I chose to have them not succeed, and it resulted in not the most positive response back to me. They weren't that happy. <laughs> They're competitive sports players, uh, team members, so it makes sense that they were they were a little upset about it. But it brought up that good intention. But that was a choice for me, and I, I struggled through that process, and they all struggled through the process. My hope that is, is that it was beneficial. That was my struggle. And it's not okay to fail in our society, and especially at, at the highest level of sport. Yeah. It's not okay to fail. You fail, you lose your job, you lose your contract, you may be out of the league, and I... And I, and I think in every place, and, and I, mostly in our culture, I don't think it's okay to fail. 
uh, from a cultural cultural mm-hmm. standpoint. We're asking people to really delve into that, which is which is hard. And also, we when we facilitate, we we take on this almost like a paternal maternal instinct for protection around this group. Like we call them our groups. Like we want them to be successful. We follow along with their success, and we want them to do well. And so we add a lot of energy in. And because of that paternal maternal instinct, we sometimes want to help. I used to find that when I used to do outdoor ed, the worst participants were the teachers that, co- that joined the kids that were the chaperones because they were, I was younger, but I was more used to seeing kids struggle. They were a little bit more success oriented and they couldn't deal with that. And it, they would give the answers to the kids because they would watch them struggle and go, no, 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 you need to do it this way. And I'm like, Ugh. you took every possibility for learning away from them. But I think we do struggle. I know lots of new facilitators really struggle with having people struggle. I think it's maybe the question is, do you let groups struggle or not? I think that's one way of asking. I think another way of saying, what does experiential learning really mean to each of us? And if it's, if we're using experiential learning as a tool to help people improve themselves, improve the groups that they work with and learn with on a daily basis how can you have experiential learning if it's only success? Like, what are you supposed to learn from that? And I think the other piece that this conversation reminds me of, it's one thing for me to say, you have as many tries as you want. There's no consequence. That's not the same as the group fully being able to actualize that. You know, when you say there's no penalty for attempting something to get out of the team triangle, I have to remember not to expect everyone to be like, oh, okay, great. Let's just try because you're right. We're not, when you have the solution, you have power. And when you don't have the solution, you don't have power. And so it's not, it's not equal. It's really off balance. And so I have to watch my expectations of a group when they have unlimited tries. Sometimes I'm like, why aren't they just trying? And it's because it's super risky, no matter what we say. Let me ask you both this question about helium hoop to bring it back to the origin example. How do you as facilitators decide What's what's your what are you what are your responsibilities when you're facilitating something like that and you see it and you know I think based on previous experience that within a few minutes yep. there are going to be people who are accusing each other of cheating, people are going to blame each other for things. I mean that's not all the time, but that's to be expected. Like, what are some like guideposts that you use to say like I should intervene, I shouldn't intervene. Before I do that activity, we've done some other work about conversation, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And I I don't start with that early on, at least in my progression nowadays. So having them have some other experiences beforehand where they've been able to communicate with each other, see what those group dynamics, that's usually where if we're really storming, I'm not doing that activity. And the storming would be things like inappropriate language, calling people out in a, um, a negative way, that that would be where I w- would be some of the markers for me that said, oh, don't do this. Or if for whatever reason, I didn't sequence it quite as well, that if things would be discussed when, when there are some inappropriate comments that come along. And I'm not talking about uh, curse words, things like that. Although that, that, that's obviously for me, that's a button. So that we would stop it down and, and kind of talk about the frustration level and how can you deal with that mm-hmm. in a more positive way. I'm okay with a group arguing. Like if I see a group arguing, I'm okay with that. I think that that's that point where you sense, I don't know, it's like there's an energy level for it. I'm like, I don't like this anymore. And if I feel like that, then it's normally I'll hold it. And if we're going to have a discussion though, I I don't like to do a discussion about 
how we're doing when we're doing it. So another example was like something that creates frustration sometimes is balancing a whale watch. If the group is standing in the whale watch and they're trying to balance that and also have a discussion and also argue, I never find that to be productive. So I bring them off it. And the same with the helium hoop, put the hoop down on the ground and let's walk over here and take a seat and let's just talk about it and we'll come back to it either immediately or we'll come back to it later as another marker of success. And it's okay actually for me if the group completely flops on it because then I'll, what I'll do is I'll remember that moment and then if I'm with them for multiple days, I'll bring the hula back out of my bag and watch them all go, oh God, no. And then see them do better, maybe, because they've worked, I've worked through it a little bit. I think it's okay to use those things as a litmus test. It, this, is so, this is so great. Priya Parker, author of The Art of Gathering, suggests unhealthy politeness is toxic to the development of effective teams. I absolutely agree with that. But do I expect something like helium hoop to be the thing that gets the group over unhealthy politeness. And I, I have to be careful for myself to always not just rely on the activity to be the teacher, like you're both saying in your own ways. I think, and I'm agreeing with, we all have to make sure that the activity is in the right context. And ultimately we're responsible for the safety of our group. Like, is there a dynamic in the group where one person is, you know, constantly being talked over or left out or berated or something? None of us would probably say, I know what's going to fix this helium hoop. You know, (laughs) I think it's that. How do you break through that unhealthy politeness? What I do with helium hoop in particular, if I use it, I normally pair it with another activity or another thing. And I pair it with tape recorder which is a play on the you taking masking tape. And as people talk to each other and have a discussion, I'm listening to comments or phrases that they say, and I'm writing them onto that tape, tearing the tape off and then sticking it over on a border. I like to stick it on myself so that by the end of the activity, I'm covered in tape with comments and they're not name specific. But I think that sometimes people don't know in the moment how they're energy and language comes across to others. So it allows them to see everything visually. And so I'll say, look at all the comments that have been made during this activity, both positive and negative and non-assigned to individuals. Which of those, and now we take those, which of those make you feel positive? Which of those don't make you feel great? And analyze, like, look how many of them made us feel kind of crappy. Like, what does that tell us about the way that we communicate? So in the same way that the helium hoop is a tool to see frustration, I don't think it's an activity that solves the problem. It brings it up up. and allows you to talk about it. It's a tool for discussion. It's not a tool like, oh, my group is really frustrated each other. I've got the solution. Helium. (laughs) All it would do is make it worse. So I use it as like an opportunity to analyze. And it's an activity like others that I use where I'm not a part of it. Like it's not one where I'll throw my fingers in. Like I'm not doing it. I'm using it to observe from a, uh, an overarching view of being able to see finally how the group is interacting. And it also gives me a break from speaking, but it's like an opportunity for me to observe, which will give me, as I mentioned, like a litmus test on how the group is functioning and where I might take the program from there. I like when we discussed this before, having a participant who, for whatever reason, doesn't feel as if they can participate in this particular activity. And with some of the groups that we've worked with, Lisa, they are oftentimes a couple of students that are just not engaged 
So having them do that masking tape, I think is uh, really good. I just have them jot it down and then they share that with the group as well. I think it's just to me, it's I'm reminding myself in this conversation that the experiential ed part of it, the education, we can't let it, the activity be the education. Activities can teach us a lot in the way we engage with them, but it just brings it back to like, what's my responsibility as a facilitator? Yeah. And I think that we're not doing our clients, our participants a service if we are a success oriented program, you know, like we, I use the phrase a lot. We call ourselves a challenge course, not a success course. And so if we are, you know, in the world of challenge, then we should create environments that perfectly replicate or simulate the act of challenges. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving Article Pass a guy. <laughs> Yeah.